You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Hi, and welcome to episode 126 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I'm your host for today. Joining me are two assistant professors of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. You know, having Danny here makes us so much more efficient in these introductions. Uh, Nathan Gilmore and Danny Anderson, how's it going, guys? Awesome. I'm doing pretty well. Well, great. Uh, Before we get to the topic at hand, we do have some listener feedback this week. Uh, Nathan, you want to read our email from Nate Becker? Yes, indeed. Nate Becker leads off with a rhetorical question, or maybe not rhetorical. Do you think that if Tarantino kept his fat mouth shut, that people would be more apt to interpret an intelligent or intelligible meaning in Pulp Fiction? He goes on to say, I've always accepted the view that Michael espoused, that the Samuel L. Jackson character, Jules, is rewarded with his life for striving to be righteous. I believe he uses the word righteous several times. You're right, Nate Becker. John Travolta's character, on the other hand, dies with the same meaninglessness with which he lived. I've heard evangelist Ravi Zacharias go off on a tangent about postmodern or nihilistic meaninglessness based on Pulp Fiction, basically saying in the film that there's all this talk about royales with cheese while not, com- while not commenting pardon me, on the violence. I disagree with Zacharias because he completely ignores Jackson's character, who is commenting on the violence and is apparently repentant. Nate goes on to say, I think the film itself makes a statement about violence, uh, though maybe only accidentally. The scene where Travolta dies, while surprising, is really an anti-climax. It builds as Bruce Willis realizes someone is in the house and prepares for a confrontation, but then results in an insulting death uh, on the potty of Travolta, who has been the progenitor of most of the tiresome dialogue and senseless violence in the film. Uh, he, he goes on to talk a fair bit more about the pul- the uh, Pulp Fiction episode. Really good stuff. But then he goes on to talk about the great American novel. I'm writing this before the episode drops, so this was a prediction on Nate's part. I just came to a conclusion a couple weeks ago when I heard NPR story that Harper Lee is still making a million a year on Mockingbird. The great American novel, therefore, has to be To Kill a Mockingbird, if for no other reason than she doesn't have uh, a catalog to muck up your impression of her. I'll let you know if you change my mind after listening. So, Nate Becker, let us know if you if we changed your mind. I don't think we changed anybody's mind in that unfocused episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I really like what he has to say about Travolta getting shot and Travolta being the progenitor of the mindless chatter. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that that's convincing. Yeah, and I also agree uh, to a great extent with the idea about Tarantino, sort of his blusteriness ruining the reputation of his films on some level. And, and so, yeah, I think that that's actually a good point. I mean, if he were sort of as reticent as the Coen brothers, again, are about their films, people might actually try to find meaning in them. <laughs> they won't even do director's commentaries except for a uh, man who wasn't there. Mm. So the moral children is if you would be more like the Coen brothers – Keep your full mouth shut, I think is the moral. <laughs> As for the great American novel, I haven't read Mockingbird since college. I liked it. Um, 
I, I don't have much to say about it. You don't hear it floated in very many of these discussions. I think right. Harper Lee ends up being a bit like Robert Frost. She is maybe unfairly penalized by the Academy for her popularity. Yeah, that's fair enough. Because that's, that's a enough. good book. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And the movie is good. Like, it, it may be the best book-movie combination ever, which is maybe another episode. There you go. <laughs> well, Danny, we also heard from another listener, uh, Doug Obenhouse. What did he have to say to us? Sure thing, Nathan. Uh, Doug says, hi, all. I'm behind on episodes, so I'm not sure if the contest is closed or if I'm repeating what others have submitted. But here's my response to your request for fake papers for each of you. Uh, Michael, scatological metaphors in Walden and its influence on 20th century excrementalism. (laughs) (laughs) Nathan, the emergence of neo uh, McLarenism in the metamodern cavescape. Oh, that is beautiful. (laughs) Once again, one that really does sound like a paper Nathan would write. (laughs) Yeah, our our listeners really are nailing me. (laughs) David, pre-Elizabethan wards for placating Puck and other fairies with attitude. (laughs) And then Danny, Jewish zombies. And so, yeah. uh, <laughs> hilarious because it's so reductive. Like, I don't know. They're all I pretty reductive. I, I, I'm just, I don't carry the depth that you guys carry with you, so I don't even get a colon. So, uh, <laughs> we didn't, none of us have colons either. <laughs> you know, I have to but, say, my, my joke name for uh, like studies fields is always 19th century English uh, fecalism. Or fecal, fecal studies. So uh, I appreciate getting uh, getting excrementalism. Oh, see, I feel so sophisticated now because when I make up a field, it's always a advanced journal of advanced subjunctive studies. See, that, well, that's, you're you're very you're very cerebral, and I'm very bodily or gr- grammatical at any rate. Falstaffian is, is what I like to think of myself. Uh, Yes. And ironically, there was a, a paper at the panel I was at on MLA about Jewish zombies. It was about the golem as a sort of zombie <laughs> figure. So, uh, uh, Doug has no idea how close he came right there. Um, and he goes on to say the next contest should be what should the mascot be for the Christian Humanist University? Isn't it accepted that the mascot is the, uh, the engineer because Choo Choo? Uh, I thought it was the uh, humanity. <laughs> the fighting Gilmores. <laughs> Didn't you go to a school, the Fighting Quakers? Yes, I did. Plainfield High School. That's excellent. You can't, you can't beat that. Go Quakers! Not even yeah. the banana slugs beats uh, the Fighting Quakers. <laughs> Although, I, in Plainfield's defense, and and no, I don't really think these are the roots. Uh, the phrase "Fighting Quakers" does appear a number of time in a number of times in the novel Moby Dick. There you go. What 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 screams Indiana more than Moby Dick? <laughs> the great Indiana novel. And Doug wraps up by saying, oh, and thanks for doing an episode on Alice Monroe. I've never heard of her until then, and I look forward to reading some of her stories. Uh, so we did a public service there. That's yeah, good. that's good to yeah, hear. Do that. And I, I hope that's going to be an annual feature for us. I hope we do an episode on every Nobel Prize. If their work. books are still in print. Um. Well, they will be quickly after, <laughs> so, uh, shortly after they win the, the Nobel Prize yeah. anyway. Yeah, just oh, yeah. Teasing the committee. So, um. Oh, you're so mean. You know, I've been reading uh, <laughs> J.M.G. Leclepsio, who won in 2006, and he's excellent. I know. I'm, I know. I'm bitter. Yeah, I know. Uh, just because Philip Roth didn't win. Uptake didn't win either. And, I, I, you know, not everybody can win. 
This doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And, and, you know, just I should have a disclaimer that the the things that we say here that Danny Anderson says on the Christian Humanist podcast don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Danny Anderson, the person. Um, so. <laughs> if you ever want to have some fun, go look at the first 10 years of Nobel Prize winners, though. It is a bunch of Scandinavian poets you've never heard of. Nice. That is for sure. Well, uh, our topic today, uh, in honor of the death of Pete Seeger, is American folk music. And it, as I said last week, it's kind of a sequel to our country music episode. So let's begin it the way we began the country music episode, with a discussion of our own experiences in the genre. Guys, what interactions have you had with folk music? When did you first encounter it? Do you listen to it today? Questions like that. Danny, go for it. Um, well, I sort of... I've always encountered it as a dis- at a distance. Uh, like so, Bob Dylan, of course, like probably most people that are listening to this, uh, is sort of my entryway. But even so, I always sort of preferred <clears throat> the kind of post folk Dylan, the sort of blood on the tracks era uh, of Bob Dylan. And so, uh, his early like protest music or whatever, uh, I always felt uh, a bit of ambivalence about. This is a, a genre of music that I have come to appreciate over time, but but at but through kind of distant. Uh, entryways. And so uh, the the big one for me, though, <clears throat> is Billy Bragg. I am a uh, a very big Billy Bragg fan uh, who's a, a British kind of folk punk singer. And so he's very much kind of a, if you could uh, like have a, 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 a child, an offspring from Joe Strummer of The Clash and Woody Guthrie, he would sort of end up with uh, Billy Bragg. And, <laughs> and, and his early uh, albums are all just sort of him and an electric guitar, the, the distorted, a distorted electric guitar, doing kind of a lot of protest songs, a lot of uh, a lot of love, love, love songs. Yeah. I love you. I am the milkman of human kindness. Only an extra point. And at one point in the late '90s, he recorded. Uh, an album or two albums actually with Wilco yep. uh, a, a recording Woody Guthrie lyrics that had been uh, discovered by his daughter. Uh, and, uh, and so they got together and it's called Mermaid Avenue. And so uh, through Billy Bragg, mostly I kind of got into uh, Woody Guthrie to the degree that I have gotten into it. So those have been sort of my two kind of uh, entryways into folk music myself. Now, my experience has been just the opposite from Danny's uh, folk music is, is the air I breathed as a kid. Uh, my dad was always playing John Prine records, Steve Goodman, Incredible String Band, Pete Sir, Woody Guthrie, Arlo Guthrie. Uh, it was always on. Uh, it's what I considered as music. And actually, I, and this is something I haven't thought of in more than 20 years, so I, it's funny thinking about how I was going to answer this question, Michael. Uh, and, and this is a, a, a little, I guess, cultural anthropology of Indiana in the mid-'80s. Uh, but in fourth grade, we would get uh, once a week loaded up on buses for weekday religious education. Uh, and <laughs> depending on how your parents – no, I'm, I'm not making this up. And depending on how your parents filled out the form, uh, you would go either to the local mosque or to the local Catholic church or to a local mainline Presbyterian church. Or if you were like me and your parents checked you know, non-denominational Protestant, you would go off to the Quaker church and you know, we would – Memorize Bible verses and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but then we would have singing time. And what I didn't know as a fourth grader uh, is that songs like Kumbaya, uh, you know, If I Had a Hammer, 
uh, all of these, you know, folk tunes were not your, you know, traditional church songs. Uh, so growing up, I always thought that, you know, Pete Seeger songs and church music were basically coextensive. And I've come to realize listeners who've been with us a while when I, when we did the, uh, church music episode, I'm, I'm realizing now what I, what I never really thought about is the fact that I have such a background in songs that people sing together that I, I think that's part of my anxiety when church services really in the late nineties in my experience started to go to more of a rock and roll concert feel, uh, especially at Christian colleges. I, I knew at the time that I was getting real uneasy about it. And I knew I always appreciated when someone came on with just a guitar and you could actually hear other people sing. It never occurred to me till then that that's probably got something to do with my early Arlo Guthrie and Pete Seeger days. So I uh, probably too much autobiography, Michael. So, uh, won't you take it away at that point? Actually, my experience is kind of a combination of you guys, which is, you know, they played Woody Guthrie records in my kindergarten because, as I'm sure everybody knows, a lot of these old folk songs have turned into children's songs, Red Room probably. They leave out a couple of verses of This Land is Your Land. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted at private property but on the back side it didn't say nothing this land was made for you and me and uh, and then i rediscovered folk music to the degree i have it's not something i listen to very much but to the degree i've rediscovered it it was through those two billy bragg and wilco albums mermaid avenue so i mean woody guthrie is at the center of my folk experience but i'm i'm not that into folk music so uh, take that as you will. I have a question for Nathan. Yeah. How many kids went to the mosque when they did those trips? Actually, a fair number. I, and, <laughs> oh, okay. and, and this is one of those things that it, it, it's never something that people believe me when I tell them at first. But uh, in Plainfield, Indiana, my hometown, there is one of the largest mosques in the Midwest. Oh. And there are actually pilgrimage paths set up from various parts in the Midwest to Plainfield, Indiana, for people who cannot afford to fly to Saudi Arabia to do the Hajj. That's and interesting. That's also good news for our listeners who would like to make the Nathan Gilmore pilgrimage. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so what, what I tell my students, and I'm, you know, I'm always playing with words this way, is that uh, we had, you know, a very large number of African Americans in my school growing up, and not one of them was black. <laughs> is it, well, because they were all from Egypt. Right. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, we learned in the country music episode not to cling too tightly to genre purity. Now, that's something we could very easily play with in this episode because folk music is, depending on how you read it, a genre that's all about purity. But instead, let's define American folk music apophatically. Nathan, what separates folk music from other genres that it's associated with, uh, whether that be blues or country or singer-songwriter or whatever? Can you come up with some sort of working definition of folk music that won't infuriate somebody no <laughs> so, <laughs> episode um <over>. yeah <laughs> let me you know just say as i often say when we do pop music episodes that the categories that we associate with popular music uh and i do think of folk as a branch of pop music rather than symphonic music or you know music soundtrack scores and so so so, so on and so forth 
they have to do with the material conditions of distribution. So the reason that we distinguish folk music from gospel music, we distinguish blues music from country music, uh, is because at one time there were record stores and you would put different records in different bins. That, of course, gave way to CDs, and that, of course, gave way to various uh, you know, code tags that you put on files on iTunes. So when you are deciding what tag to put on a musical track, what is it that makes you put the folk music track on it? A few things are, you know, fairly predictable. And again, there's always going to be overlap here. But uh, usually it's going to be something that is written to be sung along with. Uh, I generally don't associate folk music with great vocal virtuosity. Uh, it's not, I mean, if you think of Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, one, I don't think of great singing voices. Two, I don't think of great feats of range or, you know, Roy Orbison type acrobatics. Uh, a lot of times folk music will, you know, be accompanied by banjo, acoustic guitar, uh, instruments that could be brought to a campfire to be sung along with. Uh, so in my mind, I mean, you know, folk music, uh, you know, just to do a little bit of, you know, cheap etymology, uh, it is, you know, music that the Volk could sing while gathered around the fire. Um, now, Danny, you've, you've always got a more sophisticated notion of pop culture than I do. What am I missing here? I don't think that that's a fair assessment at all. Nathan. <laughs> I, I think that you're, what you just said was really bright. And um, I, the one thing I would add to it is I've been thinking about, I think, a Coyle Neal, I think a listener sent us a response to the country music episode, and he, he talked about how it, it sort of pointed to a place of some sort. And I feel like uh, in a similar way, folk music points to a kind of tradition. Uh, so it isn't just uh, the, the uh, popularness of it. it it's sort of uh, drawing on the past and, and what has been handed down across uh, uh, folks, uh, <laughs> via folk. And so I, I feel like that's another thing, that they really do a lot of uh, uh, cover tunes. I always think of singing traditional hymns, and, and, uh, so, and the, the singer-songwriter strain of it very often references uh, these sorts of uh, traditions. And, and so it seems to me a very kind of respectful genre of its of its past and it's pointing to a specific kind of locus uh, in, in that way uh in a similar way that country music i think uh does as as i believe it was coil neil uh rightly pointed out so mm-hmm. yeah and and i mean you you said popular but democratic as well i mean it's it's oh this, yeah this yeah. is music that's in no sense difficult to play uh-huh. I mean, well, I, I say that, but finger picking is hard. I get that, but it doesn't—it it doesn't have complicated structure. It usually doesn't have complicated lyrics. It is—it uh, makes a virtue of simplicity. Right, and and it's for singing along with. That's why. Right. right, and and instead of pointing to a place, I would say it po- or you say it points to a tradition. I would say it points to a myth almost. Mm-hmm. That, and and the myth is is part of that tradition. But yeah, we we have to we do have to be careful not making. To not make folk music too rural, because of course Woody Guthrie lives in Brooklyn for most of his adult life, and the, yeah. folk, the folk revival comes out of New York City. So, mm-hmm. and that is an interesting aspect of it, because something that is so associated with um, uh, aesthetically with like rural uh, traditions does like mostly come out of really 
densely populated urban environments. Uh, and, and I think that that's a very interesting aspect of it that does distinguish it from uh, many other kinds of music. I, I don't know of any kind of uh, ontological confusion in, in any sort of genre uh, <laughs> like, that, like this. Although, you know, it comes out of places, places. It, it comes out of places that have distinct feels and, and moods. It doesn't come out of the suburbs. Right. right. It comes out of Greenwich Village. Or, or San Francisco, and you have these different sorts of uh, of uh, strains of folk music. When it's when, even when it's you know at all times, but uh, and, but the place defines in many ways that strain. So I, I, I think that is yeah. I think the the importance of location is something we don't want to overlook here. Not so much in a rural urban divide as in just places versus no places. Mm-hmm. Well, the very nature of folk music is that its origins are kind of hazy and hard to hold on to. Like I said, it points back to a myth instead of an event. Um, So instead, let's talk about some of the giants of the folk scene. Um, And we'll start with Woody Guthrie, who we've already invoked several times and who is really as Mm -hmm. close to a deity as the genre has. Uh, Danny, why, why should we care about Woody Guthrie? What's so special about him or his music or his personality or anything else? Well, I think the the notion of mythology is important. I feel like in the way that Hank Williams, for many people, kind of symbolizes country music, uh, Woody Guthrie is sort of the 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 all father for that, right? And I feel like uh, for folk music, and, and so he provides in many ways the imagery I think for for folk music, and you see him very often just him and his guitar. Uh, with a, usually a little political message written on it. I think it said, this machine kills fascists, I think is what he had uh-huh. scrawled on his guitar, if I remember right, from the from the Billy Bragg album, which is, yep. of course, right up his alley. And, um, and, and so he has this sort of... Uh, this imagery that goes about it. So it's very much the iconography of folk, uh, folk music is, is wrapped up with Woody Guthrie. And in as much, uh, almost as much as his music is. And so he sort of conjures up this imagery of the oppressed yet good and hardworking people uh, that are sort of struggling through these, uh, through this life that is being uh, unfair on some level. And, and so his, uh, his music is very kind of tied up in the, the sort of socialism of his day uh, and that sort of thing. We know him for the Dust Bowl ballads. This is sort of one of his uh, uh, key contributions to American culture, these um, uh, little story tales or little story songs about uh, like working people trying to make it in a world that's against them in a lot of ways. And so uh, he creates this sort of heroic mythology of the Great Depression in that way. And in addition, uh, I feel like his moment is like one of the few places you can find a confluence between uh, communism and Christianity. And so he was, uh, uh, he had very much this, these leftist sensibilities, um, but he also, that they were sort of bound up in this notion of, of good and evil that's very closely associated with Christianity. And this is not me labeling him as a Christian, but uh, the culture of those two things work together in his, in his music uh, that uh, is an interesting way. Although this could be an apocryphal tale that I'm misremembering, but as I'm speaking, it seems to me I remember him uh, withdrawing his whatever membership in the Communist Party when they wouldn't allow Christianity uh, uh, to be a part of it. And so that was sort of a, uh, a dividing line for him. That I could be heard that. Just, that could be totally not true. I, I, this seems to be in my head. Um, he, he, did write, he did write the song, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a man that traveled through the land 
hard-working man and brave. He said to the rich, give your goods to the poor. So they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. And, and that song is very much about like what if Jesus lived yeah. in the world today? And Jesus, Jesus was a good liberal who was killed for holding to liberal yes. social policy and things like that. Yes, and so that's a, a very much a song that, that describes what I'm talking about. And I, I'm remembering now in the Billy Bragg uh, Wilco album, "Christ for President" is, yeah. is a uh, <laughs> is a terrific song that uh, they they uh, put music to the lyrics. Oh, it's Jesus Christ out. So in that way, I mean, he's a very interesting character for us uh, who, uh, because of his conscience, I think. When we disagree or agree with his politics, uh, his conscience makes him a, a very interesting character, not to mention his influence on Bob Dylan. I mean, this is, I mean Bob Dylan probably wouldn't exist without the influence of, uh, of Woody Guthrie. And uh, Dylan's reasons. first album sounds like kind of a bad Woody Guthrie impersonation. Absolutely. And that's, some, that's yeah. a, 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 an aspect of Bob Dylan I want to talk about at some point today. But yeah, I think that that's absolutely, uh, absolutely true. And, and I think that that's another reason to care about him. And I just, in researching this, stumbled across, he actually had a neighbor who was uh, a Jewish. And this is, of course, then of special interest to me. And so uh, we, uh, he wrote some lyrics that have been recorded, uh, Billy Bragg-ish, uh, uh, by the Klezmatics, uh, with this sort of uh, uh, like a Yiddish uh, or Jewish Yiddish language uh, folk group that recorded some of these things. And it's actually, it's, it's quite lovely to listen to. And so, Oh, will you come when I call you? I'll come when you call me. I'll call you at half past one. One's for the pretty little baby that's born, born, born and gone away. I believe uh, actually one of his wives was Jewish. I think that's true too. Yeah, yeah. I forget the name of his uh, lyric writing collaborator on Mermaid Avenue, though, where, where he lived. So, but uh, but yeah. So he's absolutely a monumental figure uh, in folk music. I don't know, Nathan. Having listened to him far more than me, uh, probably has more to add. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, you know, as you kept mentioning, you know, these uh, themes in his songs, I kept wanting to break out into him, but I decided to spare our listeners. Uh, just give us one, Nathan. Uh, no, thanks. But I, I will say that, I mean, uh, what you all mentioned earlier, I mean, a lot of his songs have been uh, appropriated by folks who make, you know, albums for children's music. Uh, and it's interesting. I mean, you're right that the more openly socialist verses often get uh, sort of cut out of them. Uh, but there's still a great sense that, you know, his music, even though it was yeah, I mean, you know, it was anti-establishment and it was anti-authority. Uh, it has, to a large extent, become the music of America. It's what you learn to sing when you're a kid. Uh, and I, I personally, I think that's great. Uh, and, you know, I think it goes back to what we were talking about in the Great American Novel episode to where American art is, by definition, art that calls America into question. Uh, I think that, you know, Woody Guthrie is a, is a perfect example of that. Plus, he lives all these different American lives. 
Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, he moves to California during the Dust Bowl. He grew up in Oklahoma. I mean, he lives in Brooklyn, for crying out loud. He marries a Jewish woman and writes Jewish songs. <laughs> it, it seems like he is attempting to make himself into the archetypal American. Yeah, and since yeah. he can't do that by being one person, he wants to be 30 people. He encompasses multitudes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure I'm sure if someone were interested, they could write a book uh, drawing a line between Whitman and Whitman and Guthrie. Oh, you betcha. I can't believe that's not already written. It yeah. probably um, is. American self-creation from Franklin right. to Dylan. Yeah, our, apologize, or our apologies to whoever wrote that book and we just neglected you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's not because we did it on purpose. We just haven't read it. And if you haven't done it, it's mine. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, obviously, um, this episode was prompted, as I said, by the death of Pete Seeger a few weeks ago. Um, and if Woody Guthrie is not the patron saint of American folk music, the title almost certainly belongs to Seeger. He certainly lived longer. Uh, he was born in the 19-teens and just died um, this year. And yeah. Guthrie died in the 60s. So, I mean, that's 50 years that Seeger has been able to be an elder statesman that Guthrie wasn't given the opportunity. Um, what makes Pete Seeger such an interesting case, Nathan. And in particular, I want to know about what he has to say about the uh, the intersection between folk music and left politics. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, like you said, Pete Seeger's life and his career just span so many important 20th century American moments that, uh, you know, he, he is to a large extent providing a soundtrack for America. Uh, you know, like Woody Guthrie, you know, he's he's right there in the middle of, you know, the formation of the sort of, you know, great World War II era America. He's a voice calling out, you know, in not necessarily in protest by that point, but certainly, you know, keeping things um, under critical scrutiny. A little bit of his biography, you know, he is, uh, and he tells this story uh, a number of times in his recorded concerts, but uh, his Oh, it, was his, it was his mother or his father. One of the two was a music professor. Uh, and, you know, it was, you know, sort of listening to the music that was studied rather than the music that was on the radio that made him realize there was a whole lot more music than what he was hearing on the radio. And so, you know, he got real interested in learning, you know, banjo and learning, you know, all these sorts of regional particular styles of music. Now, as far as the left politics go... A number of things going on here. One, uh, you know, very much an anti-war singer uh, and very interested in teaching people songs. And, I mean, if you listen to the recordings of his live shows, uh, everyone that I've ever heard, you know, he will stop performing a song and say, all right, let me teach you this song. And, you know, Arlo Guthrie actually does a, does a hilarious bit about this on their album they do together, Precious Friend. He says, uh, Pete does this thing where he sings the song twice. He he tells you what song's coming out ahead of it, and then he still manages to sing the song itself. And he says, I, I can't do that. Uh, but always interested in getting people singing. Uh, you know, his famous uh, Vietnam-era song, uh, The Waist Deep in the Big Muddy. It was back in 1942, I was a member of a good platoon. We were on maneuvers in Louisiana one night by the light of the moon. The captain told us to ford a river, that's how it all begun. We were knee-deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. You know, obviously a political allegory about the 
bullheadedness of people who stay involved in Vietnam. Later on, he becomes, you know, in my mind, one of the singular figures of the 20th century environmental movement with his Clearwater movement. Uh, they actually sailed a ship up and down the Hudson River doing environmental education, sort of teaching style. Uh, I mean, to the point where, oh, I don't know. I mean, by the late 70s, you could actually swim in the Hudson River again because public consciousness had been raised to the point where the government actually cleaned up the river. Uh, so, I mean, for Pete Seeger, you know, he always talks about this in his concerts that getting people together and letting them have a voice rather than just shutting up and listening was itself a political act. He talked about how anytime you get people together, even if it's just to sing songs, uh, they become a body politic in a way that they weren't back when they were just in their houses listening to the radio. Uh, so again, in my mind, and, and you know, I'll, I'll just go ahead and comment on this again. I, I think that Pete Seeger got me ready to read Walter Brueggemann when I was older and in seminary, because one of Walter Brueggemann's big points of focus in Old Testament theology is that we become God's people by telling God's story and by singing God's song. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that that vision of the politics of song uh, is something that I was ready for when I read it because Pete Seeger had taught me to sing before that. Well, that's that's actually really lovely. <laughs> the sentiments you're making there, David. Uh, Nathan. Um, I actually, when you're talking about his influence transcending music, though, particularly folk music, I think that that's what stands out to him about me uh, because you know, I've you know, Midwestern boy. And so Bruce Springsteen is sort of the soundtrack of my life in a lot of ways. And so, uh, like Bruce Springsteen recently within, uh, within the last five or eight years did a, a album of Pete Seeger covers. Right. And, and so he great he, album, by the way, great. The sergeant said, would you like a soldier? He's undead. Scarlet coat, big contact and missing my grave. Would you like that? With your two right, holding the A to the right, right. Took this on the road, and, and and so this is, I mean, an example of how that conscience uh, that Pete Seeger uh, brought out in his music by doing it transcended his genre across into sort of straight up rock and roll, uh, and then you're, as you're talking about into sort of actual political activism in the world, and I think that that's something that really few singers can make a, a legitimate case for. Um, uh, and so that's definitely makes him a monumental figure beyond just his longevity. Um, I do think, though, that um, it could be tempting this close to his passing, particularly, to uh, be entirely celebratory of him. And, and I feel like at some level we need to at least consider his uh, uh, elongated, shall we say, support for, like, Soviet-Russian, like, politics. And oh, so, sure, I mean, he, sure, yeah. He, he, he did not uh, uh, call Stalin out uh, nearly soon enough uh, when, when other people were. Um, and I feel like that he also, whereas, like, his principles are, are beautiful, and I, I have, I am not, Trying to in any way diminish his legacy, uh, when though his where his print though his principles are beautiful, I do think it's a a, a 
a warning about letting those principles cloud your vision about what's actually in front of you. Uh, and, and so when you can observe what's going on in, uh, in, in Russia with these purges uh, and, and, and still sort of not um, um, uh, reckon, recognize it in some way, that is, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cautionary tale, let me just say. I, I'm trying to be overly... Um, generous here. Um, but, but I, I do like, this is not a, a way to say that I don't really love Pete Seeger. Um, and, and I, I really do, but I, I do think that it's, it's worth considering the, uh, uh, the caution of his, of his politics a bit. No, I think you're right, Danny. And I mean, I, I would just say, I mean, you know, here recently, I mean, the last three months, I mean, uh, with Pete Seeger dying and not long before that, Nelson Mandela dying, both of them are cautionary tales in that respect. And honestly, that's something I have a tendency to underplay you're right um and and it is one of those things i mean i'll I'll just be straight up i mean i think that if any of us have to live by guilt by association we're gonna die by it yeah Uh, that 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 don't make it right but it makes me tend to downplay it rather than upplay it yeah yeah absolutely and this is not me preaching so The thing that interests me about Pete Seeger, I mean, not the thing, but one thing that interests me about him is the background he comes from, because he comes from a very upper crust Manhattan family. His father's yeah. a musicologist. His stepmother's Ruth Crawford Seeger, who's one of the leading avant-garde composers of the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And he goes to Harvard, and to me, you can hear it in his singing voice. His singing voice has always bothered me a little bit, not because it's inauthentic or anything stupid like that. But just it, it doesn't seem to fit with the sort of music he's singing. He sounds like he sounds like a Harvard man singing folk music to me. <laughs> am I yeah. am I way off? No, you're right. Which is, I mean, why it's interesting to me that you say you talk about how he he always taught the lyrics to the crowd because they they. Get, get to kind of overwhelm him and toward the end of his life i heard an interview with him you know all the uh, radio shows were playing old interviews with pete seeger after his death and one of the things he said was toward the end of his life he couldn't sing anymore you know when you get older your voice just begins to go and and he um he would still do concerts and he would just have the crowd sing every single song now see i think that's great i do too no i'm with you i'm not i'm not putting him down at all i think that's wonderful oh yeah and and really at the heart of of who he was and what his project was Mm mm-hmm well, if Seeger reminds us that folk music is often attached to liberal politics, the story of Bob Dylan should remind us that in many ways the folk revival scene of the 60s and the folk revival scene before that in the 40s and 50s was intensely conservative. Um, Danny, will you talk for a few minutes about what makes Dylan such an interesting character and why he got so controversial in 1965? Well, I mean, he's a fascinating character for reasons that transcend music to me uh, Bob <laughs> Dylan is <laughs> um, Bob Dylan I mean is somebody who as an artist is just wholly dedicated to the idea of inventing the self uh, and I feel mm-hmm. like you bring up the, uh, the the imitation of Woody Guthrie in his early work and, and he is you could just see hear him working that identity out uh, in that in that in those albums and those songs And I feel like um, 
And so when he does all of his sort of uh, morphing over the time, over the years, uh, which is never ending, I, I just you get the sense that he's always looking to see what everybody else thinks he should be and then changes it <laughs> and changes what he is and to the point where I don't feel like there is really a true Bob Dylan. I feel like Bob Dylan is almost uh, um, a musical device of this, of this like free, free floating consciousness that, that uh, explores <laughs> popular music. Well, like that and Todd so, Haynes movie where Dylan is played by four or five different people. Exactly. Um, yes. That, what was it called? I'm not, what is it? What was I'm it not called? there. I think. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, that's exactly how I feel about Bob Dylan. So that's music aside. He's a fascinating character. The music he's made is, is brilliant and he's very often talked Much about more. in the conversation for the, for the, for the, for the Nobel prize as, as a, as a poet. Right. And so, I mean, because of the, the strength of his, of his songwriting. And also I would say that his influence on popular music's uh, performance can't be um, underestimated. His uh, particularly after he goes electric, uh, you can't listen to him and then not hear later on that in Tom Petty and people like that. I mean, he's, he has, he does establish what rock and roll is um, once he sort of breaks from the uh, uh, the, the confines of folk music. So, um, but get to the the question about conservatism. I I, I kind of I see two strains of conservatism in your question, and, and one is related to the sort of mass popularity of the style, um, which could lead. Uh, to a kind of simple boosterism, as it were. And so you have the, the, the whole thing about Woody Guthrie's song, This Land is Your Land, you guys have already alluded to. Uh, there are sort of two ways to see that. One is a celebration of America and all its awesomeness, and one is a uh, communist propaganda, right? And so there, there are sort of, depending on your perspective, there are sort of two ways to, to uh, sort of see folk music. And one of those ways I always felt like um, was this sort of patriotic strand. And so I feel like, you hear that a bit in if you can think of the movie um, um, A Mighty Wind, which is sort of like waiting for Guffman for folk music in PBS, um, if you've ever seen that movie. Um, um, it really does kind of parody this sort of very poppy kind of folk music that I would associate with conservatism and, and, uh, and marketability in that sort of way, um, which I would think would have a discomfort with Dylan's progressive politics. But the other strain, and I think this is what you're really getting at, is the strictness with which folk, uh, the folk scene drew its boundaries at the time in the early 60s. That is what uh, I was the scene, Yes. <laughs> so the, the scene uh, sort of demanded authenticity. Uh, we had, a, I think, an episode about this at one point. Yes, we um, did. As a kind of revolutionary stance against pop music, uh, which I think they could, you could say they saw as some sort of organ of capitalist uh, structures and oppression and that sort of thing. Uh, and so uh, there was the, the kind of uh, rock and roll was associated with sort of marketing and selling in a way that folk music was standing up against. It was the truth, you know, three chords in the truth, the guy and his, or a girl and his, their guitar um, singing traditional songs for the people um, outside of some sort of market. This was the ideal. Um, and then with uh, the album, I think bringing it all back home, if I remember right, Dylan went electric and sort of all heck broke loose at that point. John is in a basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat badge out laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway looking for a new friend. A man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen wants $11 bills. You only got 10 uh, which really 
came to a head at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965, which is something he had played before um, as the sort of hero of the genre, of the of the movement. Uh, he was sort of the, the the Woody Guthrie of this of this time. Uh, he was the person everybody looked up to, and he comes out and plugs in, uh, and everybody starts. Uh, many people in the crowd boo him, and, and they feel like he sold out to the to the man in some ways, and he ends up leaving after uh, just a couple of songs, and so. That's the point at which he becomes controversial when he sort of, I would say he takes the spirit of folk music, uh, which is uh, something apart from its aesthetic, and he tries to uh, break it loose from that constrictive um, art form, uh, aesthetic form. And so I feel like doing that um, was in its own way, revolutionary. And of course, he has continued to do this repeatedly all the way to the point where he's now selling cars during the Super Bowl, right? And so uh, (laughs) at no point does he sort of settle on on, um, a singular identity. And I think that that's that's why he's so controversial even today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and it's easy enough for us to look back and say, oh, what he's doing is constantly shifting identities. But in 1965, Dylan was supposed to be the voice of his generation, and, and, and in particular, the voice of the folk scene in his generation. Right, so, right. So that he's all of a sudden spouting off these weird, surrealistic lyrics and playing a Fender Stratocaster. He's played Stratocaster <laughs> and Jazzmaster. And he play an electric guitar. You know, I, people are dumb to call him Judas, which is what happened at that New York City concert in August 1965. <laughs> but it's at least an understandable stupidity. Yeah, yeah, but still weird. I Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and as we, as we discussed in the country music episode, I don't think any of us are too interested in authenticity in music. But then none of us are involved in the folk scene in Greenwich Village in the early 60s. Right. Well, and then also, I guess, I mean, I have to remember or I have to remind myself because I would forget that, you know, I mean, really the great movement of protest rock was still, I mean, rising in 1965. It wasn't, you know, a given that rock and roll was the music of anti-war and all that kind of good stuff. I'll do you one better. Rock as a genre that was about lyrics, didn't exist in really until Dylan did. It certainly didn't exist in the the mainstream of the public consciousness. Yeah, point taken. Point taken. Because I mean, the first album, the first rock album to have lyrics printed with it is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and the Beatles become interested in their lyrics because they listen to Bob Dylan. Yeah. So I mean, it's an understandable conservatism, although it doesn't make it any less silly, with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, although I, I, I guess, I mean, you know, and now that I think about it a little bit further, I mean, it wasn't too long before that that people were rioting at Stravinsky, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, was, I... it was as long before that as it has been since that. Dude. <laughs> holy cow. Yeah, holy cow is right. It's about the same same length of time. Um, you know, the other, the other funny thing is Seeger was apparently at that Newport concert. And he, he is said to have said, give me an axe, I'll cut the cord. Although what he meant by that is um, is disputed. Some people say that he wanted to cut it because it was plugged in. And he says that what he was upset about was that the sound quality was so bad that nobody could hear the lyrics. Ah, uh, okay. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard that. That um, sounds like redaction to me. But it's, it, it sounds like it, something you'd say after the fact. In the context of the event, that really makes a lot less sense than the uh, just the anger at, at betrayal does to me. So, but you know, far be it for us to impugn Pete Seeger. 
Right. <laughs> I really didn't mean to do that earlier, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I was really just trying to be conscientious. I was not trying to impugn him. In a way, I hope he would appreciate. Well, not everybody in the folk scene followed Dylan's lead in plugging in, of course, but an awful lot did, uh, to the point now where if you look at the Newport Folk Festival, it really features a variety of indie rock bands that don't seem to my ears to have much at all to do with Woody Guthrie or Pete Seeger. I mean, it's not like the Foo Fighters are playing there. It's people who play an acoustic guitar sometimes, but given our definitions of folk music, I'm not sure some of these bands actually fit it. Uh, what do we make of this broad movement called folk rock, starting with the 1960s and moving in till today? Uh, Nathan, do you find that a helpful term? Well, like I said, I mean, it, it's one of those things where, I mean, you've got to put some kind of tag on your iTunes file, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> and and you're right. I mean, you know, what you hear when you hear folk rock, uh, it bears resemblances, I'd say family resemblances to, you know, uh, Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie and Woody Guthrie, uh, that, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, bands like, uh, Foo Fighters or, you know, 311 or Metallica. And yes, I did just make three nineties band references, didn't I? I, the I Foo really Fighters do. are at least still releasing albums. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's true. Okay. So I'm not, <laughs> I don't know about, I don't know about Metallica and 311. Yeah. But at any rate, those guys don't have affinities with, you know, folk music that, folk rock does so i mean it, it's one of those things that you know I, I i know michael that you you know uh very conscientiously tag all of your mp3 files you know to make sure they're all categorized properly and i've actually uh, i actually do multiple genres now so that i can put them in multiple folders i'm pretty obsessive compulsive about it so there you go so i mean just like i you know i and again i'm, I'm gonna sound like i'm just refusing to answer your question, but I mean, it really is an answer uh, to the same extent. I think that the literary canon is a function of the 15 week semester. I think that the genre folk rock is a function of the music store and the iTunes tag. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and honestly I am, and and I really do mean this, this isn't false humility. I, I have all sorts of other false virtues, but I, I really do think that I'm an unsophisticated enough listener that, Put whatever tag you want on it. If I like it, I'll listen to it, and if not, I won't. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I punted that. Danny, help me out here. <laughs> well, no, I think that you're right. I think that most of the labels we put on things are a little useless, and, and particularly, I think what we were just saying about Bob Dylan, I think he makes the case. I mean, he was doing the work of folk music uh, in a broad array of styles. I mean, and I don't think that you can look at the blues-influenced things he's doing now as particularly different uh like in terms of its uh of its art and and i think that um uh i think that these sorts of things are just ways to um i i don't know if it's just a way to sell things i mean i do think that people identify through these uh, labels and and so i think that uh there is a sense of i'm a fan of this type of music as sort of a label of, of pride and and so i mean if you think of uh someone who grew up in Alabama in the the sixties or whatever, and you know, it wasn't cool to like country music, so they like country rock or something. You know what I'm saying? Okay, and, all, I right, like, all right, all right, <laughs> I, I can dig that. I can dig that. And so, I mean, I, I do feel like, I mean, what's really the difference between country rock and Waylon Jennings? I don't know. Yeah. And so, you know, and so, yeah, um, or for that so matter, Elvis is, Presley and country music. 
Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so, although like, you know, interestingly, music? I've got like I said, I use multiple tags, and I think I have um, from Elvis and Memphis. Almost every song is tagged with both country rock, pop rock, uh, blue-eyed soul, because it's all of those things. I think right, the yeah, other but... rebellion against against labels is rather than not use them, I just use a bunch of them at once and recognize that things transcend genre, or try to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they should. I mean, I think that's. If art isn't doing that, it's probably cheating itself on some level. Um, so. Sure, sure. Yeah, so, I can dig that. So it doesn't bother me that non-folk artists play the Newport Folk Festival. Although, you know, they still bring out Billy Bragg every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember well, um, did, yeah. I, I was listening to a recording of his concert from a few years ago there, and he said, um, he said, this song is dedicated to all the poor people in their yachts on the ocean who couldn't afford tickets but are still listening. <laughs> <laughs> so he's Billy Bragg <laughs> still. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, let's end the way we did before uh, with a series of recommendations. What folk artists or albums or songs or movements or whatever else would you guys recommend? Danny, you start and then pass it to Nathan. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I probably stole my own thunder, but I, I would go with the mermaid Avenue um, set by Billy Bragg and Wilco. Uh, this is, and speaking of the little joke he made that you're just at Newport, he is hilarious in concert. He's yeah, one he's of those artists. Uh, like I've, I've gone to see him like three times, like all over the country. My wife and I have driven to go see Billy Bragg in concert. He, he's almost like you feel sorry when he starts singing because the, the banter is so entertaining between songs. And so he, he's like, uh, <laughs> he's a really funny guy. And so, um, but those albums are particularly uh, good. They do try to be very kind of, uh, I, 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 the, the, the melodies and the, the, uh, uh, the rhythms that they attach to these lyrics that, uh, that Guthrie had left really do fit those songs amazingly well. And, and to me that that's a really interesting um, illustration of what makes folk music great is that it's the simplicity of it. The fact that somebody 40 years later or however long that was uh, can take those lyrics and rather easily put uh, music to them that, that makes perfect sense. Like I, I feel like that's the kind of universality of folk music. So, Do you have that a particular would be, song you want us to play, Danny? Um, gosh, uh, I think, well, the one that I think, uh, that Jeff Tweedy does the, the vocals for, uh, California stars is just, is a beautiful, it's a beautiful song. Um, but, uh, but I believe that Wilco and Billy Bragg wrote the, the music to those together. Well, I'm going to make uh, two recommendations of uh, sort of Midwestern folk singers and then one that I've just re- uh, discovered recently. Uh, one of my favorites growing up was uh, Steve Goodman. Uh, he is a – he usually gets quali- uh, classified as singer-songwriter, but it, it's the same kind of thing as far as I can tell. Uh, Chicago-based, actually did the uh, WGN radio theme song for the Chicago Cubs, which they still play before Cubs games. 
Uh, also did just a, a hilarious little send up of the American poem, the uh, Dying Cowboys' Last Request, called the Dying Cub Fans' Last Request. <laughs> uh, also famously, uh, the composer of uh, the. Uh, uh, you never even called song. me by my name. Well, that one, yeah, but also uh, City of New Orleans. Uh, which is, you know, another one of those sort of folk standards. So, riding on the city of New Orleans, Illinois Central Monday morning, race. fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders, three conductors and twenty-five sacks of men. Out on the southbound Odyssey, the train pulls out of Kankakee and it rolls past houses and farms and fields. Past some towns that have no name and freight yards, full of old black men in the graveyards of the rusted automobiles. Just a singing good morning, American, how are you? Don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans. I'll be going 500 miles when the day is done. And I was dealing. Uh, unfortunately, he died, I mean, in my mind, well before his time of cancer in 1984. Uh, but, I mean, his, his corpus is still a lot of fun. Another Midwestern folk singer, John Prine. Uh, and I love John Prine, first of all, because he sings the kind of nonsense songs. Uh, that I like so much from folk music. Uh, Let's Talk Dirty in Hawaiian is is just hilarious. <laughs> well, I packed my bags and bought myself a ticket for the land of the tall palm tree. Aloha, old Milwaukee. Hello, Akiki. I just stepped down from the airplane when I heard her say, Whack a whack a nuka whack a whack a nuka would you like a lay? Hey, let's talk dirty in Hawaii. Whisper in my ear. Uh, and it, it's funny, there's a story. He uh, he played that in concert, and a music reviewer, you know, wrote a scathing review that he was making fun of Hawaiians. And he wrote into the newspaper and said, Well, no, I was making fun of Midwesterners who vacationed in Hawaii. and the editorial writer came back and said, well, that's all right then. <laughs> uh, but his his song, which uh, Michael's going to play here, uh, Your Flag Decal Won't Get You Into Heaven Anymore, uh, is one of my favorite anti-war songs because it combines nonsense folk music with just a sharp-edged anti-war uh, sentiment. So Michael, go ahead and play that. Wow, digesting... Reader's Digest in the back of the dirty bookstore. A plastic flag with gum on the back fell out on the floor. Well, I picked it up and I ran outside, slapped it on the window shield. And if I could see old Betsy Ross, I'd tell her how good I feel. But your flag, your gal, won't get you into heaven anymore. They're already overcrowded from your dirty little war. Now Jesus don't like killing, no matter what the reason's for. And your flag cow won't get you into heaven anymore. You know, 
I saw John Prime once in Omaha. My father saw that he was playing, just bought me two tickets and sent them to me. I'd never listened to John Prine or anything, but it was a fun concert. He played with Iris Dement, who he did a duets album with a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And actually, he and uh, Steve Goodman used to do a lot of shows together as well. So. And while, while the song doesn't give him credit, John Prine also co-wrote You Never Even Called Me By My Name. Oh, I didn't oh. even know that. Yeah. I'll be. I don't know okay. if he didn't want the credit or what. One of the great, you know, joke country songs. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I, yeah, I, I love that song. But uh, one that I discovered here recently, my dad actually played it for me over Christmas, is a, a singer named Tom Rush. His uh, recent album, uh, Trolling for Owls, is once again, I mean, just one of those great little uh, albums of, uh, you know, very sing-along-worthy nonsense songs. Uh, it, it's largely a reflection on his moving from New Hampshire to Wyoming, uh, and just, you know, sort of the, the commentary on all the little things about moving out to the western, whatever you want to call Wyoming, uh, are just a lot of fun to listen to. So those are three that I'd recommend. I, I, I couldn't settle on just one, Michael. What do you got? Yeah. I'm going to recommend a more recent singer. His name is Josh Ritter. He comes out of uh, Moscow, Idaho, and he's he's made, I don't know, five or six albums, and they, they run the gauntlet from rock music to, to some really quiet, sad, clever folk songs. Um, my wife's favorite is one called um, The Temptation of Adam, which makes a uh, lyrical joke about a crossword puzzle that I'll let you go find on your own. But the one I'm going to play is uh, one of the best... I don't even know what to call this genre of songs. Um, one that quest- looks at the suffering in the world and questions the goodness of God. Is there a title for a song like that, Nathan? Oh, goodness. Uh, Anti-theodicy not, songs? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, it's called A Thin Blue Flame. Um, the whole song's ten minutes long, but I'll give you just, just a few seconds. I became a thin blue wire Held the world above the fire And so it was I saw behind Heaven's just a thin blue line If God's up there, he's in a cold, dark room The heavenly hosts are just the cold, dark moons He bent down and made the world in seven days Ever since he's been walking away Mixing with nitrogen and lonely holes Where neither seraphim or raindrops go I see an old man wandering the halls alone But only a full house gonna make a home So anyway, yeah, I recommend uh, Josh Ritter. My favorite album um, from him is... uh, the Historical Conquests of Josh Ritter, which is a silly title for a, a really good album that is alternately folky and rocky and even a little bit of uh, country. So uh, he is, he, he's got some of the best lyrics around, in my opinion. Anyway, that's our American folk music episode. Obviously, none of us are uh, experts, and obviously we left a great deal out. So um, please email us like Coyle Neil did about the country music episode and tell us where we're being stupid. Uh, perhaps some communists would like to defend Pete Seeger <laughs> against Danny's vicious attacks. <laughs> oh, dear. People are going to be so glad when Grubbs comes back and I'm finally gone. <laughs> uh, 
anyway, if you'd like to if you'd like to send us an email, our email is thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. Nathan, what's on the table for next week? Well, we've been talking for a while about doing a postmodernism episode, so I reckon I'll go ahead and do one. So that episode will be whatever you want it to be. <laughs> All right, Don Williams. <laughs> Ouch, I hope he doesn't listen. Ouch. I hope he does. Anyway, <laughs> until then, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and the absent David Grubbs saying let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. Mm-hmm.